We've been going through the Gospels and learning some of the biblical principles of discipleship. And uh, tonight we're moving into a, the second phase of this study, and uh, we want to take a moment and kind of look where we've been so then we can see where we're going and uh, be able to kind of put it together. So let me just quickly review what we have been covering over the past months. First of all, we spoke of discipleship, its definition. And this is the definition that we devised from the scriptural teaching, not a brief dictionary definition, not only, uh, not just a definition of the Greek word, mathetes, but also the, the definition from the standpoint of the way the Gospels present the concept of discipleship. And what we've concluded is this, that a disciple of Jesus is one who is a follower of Jesus, a learner from him, his apprentice, whose conduct, philosophy, and way of life are completely identified with Jesus, who is continuously instructed by Jesus, and who is consistently involved for Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, it is the last part of that definition that really comes home to us when we get into the book of Acts and study discipleship from the standpoint of the book of Acts. Whereas most of what we find in the Gospels has to do with the disciples being involved with Jesus personally, and even though that continues in the book of Acts, what we find most consistently concerning discipleship and disciples in the book of Acts is that these people were consistently involved for Jesus. In a sense, they had been to school. They had been instructed by Jesus Christ. They had found an identification with him and even discovered it in a new and fresh way through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now they were launching out into service for him. Most of what we'll find, as you'll see in the book of Acts, will relate in one way or another to the concept of Christian service. And so we saw that to uh, fulfill this definition, it involved coming into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to be taught, responding obediently to his commands, and following wherever he might lead. Then the second thing we saw was discipleship, its difference. We went through the gospel accounts, and we saw that there were uh, a number of kinds of discipleship. There were the disciples of Moses. There were the disciples of the Pharisees. There was the disciples of John the Baptist. And we saw very clearly that the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ was far superior to any other. And there were really four reasons why that, that, why that uh, discipleship was superior. It was superior because of his atonement as Savior. None of these others could save. Only Jesus Christ could truly save as he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Secondly, because of his authority as the teacher. Remember that he taught not as the scribes, but he taught as one having authority. Thirdly, because of his association as a friend. Whereas there was a, a, almost an aloofness to John the Baptist as an example. Yet Jesus Christ came, as we saw in another study, very clearly to his disciples and said, I'll no longer call you servants, I'll call you friends, phileo. We're on the same wavelength. We can uh, think the same and act accordingly. And then lastly, because of his activity as a bridegroom, none of these other people who claimed disciples 
could come into union with those disciples like a bride and a groom. But rather, it was always a barrier between the teacher and the taught, always a barrier between the didaskalos and the mathetes. And so therefore, uh, with Jesus Christ, that gap is cared for in that we come into union with Jesus Christ and someday we'll be wed to him, he the bridegroom and we the bride, he the head and we the body. And so for those four reasons, the discipleship to Jesus Christ is superior to any other. Now because of that, we remember we spent a little bit of time talking about the fact that it really is a misnomer to talk about discipling people. Because that is often understood to draw people into a relationship with oneself so that they, they gain from you your vast storehouse of knowledge. That's generally what's thought of when people talk about discipling others. It is more accurate to say it is our purpose to point others to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't ever want to have disciples. That was done forever after John the Baptist. And John the Baptist recognized it. And when his disciples came to him and said, John, some of your number are following Jesus. John says, he must increase. I must decrease. And that's one of the greatest tragedies of the concepts of discipleship today is that there are a lot of people going around discipling others to themselves, making them dependent upon them. And of course, if they don't learn an independence of the one that is doing the discipling, then they will never become dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful. Now, mind you, uh, we probably will use the terminology because it's so commonly heard. But whenever we mention discipling someone, we are always thinking in terms of not discipling them to yourself, but discipling them to Jesus Christ. That's of absolute importance. That's discipleship, its difference. And then we talked about discipleship, its demands. And we looked at five key passages that gave us, gave us both the demands and some dividends of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we talked about discipleship, its distinctives. We said that there were three basic distinctives that made the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ that really were the keys upon which discipleship hangs. And that is, first of all, continuing his word, Secondly, love one another. And thirdly, bear much fruit. That's the distinctives of discipleship. And then we talked about discipleship, its dividends. And we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ promised both earthly compensation and eternal compensation for those that were followers of him. In the sixth part, we talked about discipleship, its development. And it's there that we talked about the three levels of relationship with Jesus Christ. The servant-master relationship, where the focus was on obedience. You obey simply because he's boss and I work for him. Then there was the family relationship, where there was a focus on family likeness. We, we serve Christ because we're a part of the same family. But the highest level of relationship with Christ is friend-to-friend -friend relationship, where he says, I no long, longer call you servants, but I call you friends, where the focus is on intimacy, where we think like Christ thinks. Respond like Christ responds, as his word saturates our hearts and minds. So therefore, we begin to um, do his will uh, just because of that attitude that we have developed toward him, friend-to-friend -friend relationship. That's the development of discipleship. 
And then finally, we talked about discipleship, its design. And we only briefly touched on the Sermon on the Mount and saw the attitudes that the believer should have, the be attitudes. And uh, we talked about those that relate to a vertical and a horizontal relationship. And both of those things are emphasized. Now, um, those are the highlights then of the subject of discipleship from the Gospels. And it leads us to the subject of discipleship as exemplified in the book of Acts. By way of introduction, I want to talk to you about sort of an overall picture tonight, and uh, perhaps we'll carry over into our study next week as well. But we want to talk about, about the overall picture, and then we'll get to some specifics in due time. As you read through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, you cannot help but be impressed with the remarkable success that a handful of believers called disciples had in the first century church. There have been many people that have sought to uncover the secret behind the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this primitive setting. And we don't uh, suppose that we can improve upon what a lot of people have written about this subject, but we believe that perhaps we can approach it from a little different angle in our study of discipleship. Remember that these people in the book of Acts did not have the benefit of radio or television or a printing press. They could have no gospel recordings. They could have no uh, Christian literature crusade. Uh, they could have uh, nothing in the way of, of uh, materials to hand out, in the way of notes as uh, the ministry was going forth. Uh, the people did not carry scrolls uh, with them. Most of them had no access whatsoever even to the Old Testament scriptures except from the teaching that they had had. Uh, but as far as having something written to carry in their hands, they did not have it. Um, we would see all of this as a tremendous handicap. I, I personally uh, know uh, how I would feel if you people could not carry your Bibles. Uh, one reason is because it would be difficult for you to be like the Bereans and search the scriptures to see if these things be so. I always think of those Bereans who were stated to be more noble than those in Thessalonica. And I think in terms of the fact that for them to do what they did was not a matter of simply going home and reading their Bible, even though that's what you could do in way of duplication today. It meant that they would have to go and get access to the scrolls which were kept in the synagogue. And uh, in some cases, if they really wanted to check it out, they had to travel many miles to get access to the Old Testament scriptures so that they could check the Apostle Paul out and find out if he was really accurate. They really did a lot of work uh, to, to find out about, about the Word of God. But the, the Apostles did not have the benefits that we have today of communication. And yet, they had an impact upon their society that has been not duplicated in any succeeding age. They touched all segments of a legalistic Jewish and a paganistic Greek culture. And one is forced to the conclusion that the success of the early church was not primarily one of method, but rather one of motivation by God's Holy Spirit. As they experienced the power of God's Holy Spirit, they got involved with others in sharing the gospel. They all got involved to some degree or another in the sharing of that message. 
and as a result, they turned the world, as it says in one place, upside down. Another place, it says they filled, uh, the, they filled the city of Jerusalem with their doctrine. These men were men who were committed to Jesus Christ, committed to what they had seen and heard as witnesses, and nothing could, uh, could destroy the confidence they had in the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, some have suggested that the Acts of the Apostles is misnamed, that it actually should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit is very prominent from the beginning to the end of the book. I'd like to contend, however, that it's always God's purpose to work through human instruments. And therefore, if we were going to retitle Luke's treatise, and the title, by the way, is not inspired, so we can change it any way we want, um, but I think that the title could be better called The Acts of Spirit-Controlled Men. Not merely the Acts of the Apostles, not merely the Acts of the uh, Holy Spirit, but rather the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through men and women in that early church. Now in the fifth chapter of Acts, we read a very interesting story. And let's turn to that now, and we'll get into a few things in the text tonight. Acts chapter 5 and verse 28. This, of course, is the incident uh, where the high priest rose up and uh, joined hands with the Sadducees, and they were filled with all kinds of indignation and hatred. They laid hands on the apostles. They threw them in prison. They commanded that they not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. They were released. They went out, and immediately they began to preach again. And so then it says in verse 28, saying, Did not we strictly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What a blessed accusation. They had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. Would to God we could do that in the Santa Clara Valley. I'd love to have that kind of accusation placed against me, that we are filling the Santa Clara Valley with our doctrine, with our didaskalos. Now, uh, I noticed on the prayer sheet tonight, did you notice that? The Red Sea Mission team has been accused of flooding the area with their literature. All right, there you are. That is filling that area with the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what we as believers in Christ should be involved in doing. We should fill everywhere we go with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, and let's just take a moment and look at it, but the words uh, strictly command are these, P-A-R-A-N-G-E-L-I-A-I, -A -A -I. and then the next word is P-A-R, long E, N-G-E-I-L-A-M-E-N. Now, the words are exactly the same, only in a different, a different tense and mood and so on. And the word is uh, actually means, did, commanding, did not we command you? In other words, uh, there is a heavy emphasis here. By the way, that's, this particular phrase was a common Hebrew idiom that was carried over into the Greek. 
And the idea was to intensify the idea and concept of a command. It doesn't just say, we commanded you. Not even that we commanded you uh, straightly uh, or that we commanded you strictly. It's more than that. Commanding, we commanded you. In the process of our commanding, we gave you another command. We really laid it on you as far as the command was concerned. You see, they were not at all uh, shy about making this command. They commanded and they made it very intensive as they stated it here. And the word fulfill is the perfect active indicative of the word pleruo. P-L long E R O O. It means to fill to the full or to fill to the brim. To fill to overflowing. Of course, the same word is used several times in the book of Colossians where it speaks of Jesus Christ uh, being uh, the one who fills all in all and the one who fills us, if you please. The perfect tense, though, means that they had, they had done something in the past with present continuing results. And so, therefore, what they're saying is you filled the city of Jerusalem with your doctrine with the result that it's still being filled up. That there was an overflowing. They were, they're just saying, this is too much. We can't take it anymore. You're, you're filling the place, and, and the filling is growing, and uh, people are hearing the gospel, and it seems to be multiplying and spreading here in the city. Now, the, the background to that, of course, has to do with the fact that, indeed, these men and uh, women that were believing in Jesus Christ had had a multiplying and very fruitful ministry. So we want to take a few minutes and talk about the evidence of the success of the disciples' ministry here in the city of Jerusalem and, of course, then ultimately elsewhere. If you'll look with me back at chapter 1, we'll just follow through, without a great deal of comment, um, a number of verses here in the first six chapters of the book of Acts. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. There's our word, the word disciples. And remember now, that's the concept all the way through the book of Acts. These men were followers of Jesus, had been learners in his school. And now they're going to be involved in carrying out a ministry on his behalf. These men were not disciples of Paul. They were not disciples of Peter. They were not disciples of, of John the Baptist. They were not disciples of the Pharisees. They were not disciples of Moses. They were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though they just use the word disciples, that's always implied in this word when it has reference to those believers. But then it says, And the number of names together, some total, was about how many? 120. Now there's the core group that we start with. Incidentally, I want you to understand that that was the, if you please, on the day of Pentecost, the only local church in the community. And by the way, it's not a local church until the Holy Spirit came. They were not yet baptized into the body. Therefore, they could not be considered a local church. But the ecclesia comes out of the, the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But they are in a position now where they're about to form a local church. They didn't know exactly what it was going to be called. And they didn't know a lot about it. 
and they didn't know anything about church government at all. Uh, they didn't have any of those advantages, but they were forming a local church. And the Holy Spirit would come and make it official. And they start with 120. Now, the thing that always bothers me is they started with 120. And it wasn't long, and they had at least 8,000. And churches today can start with 1,200 and 10 years later have 500. And you wonder why, don't you? What has happened? Are there secrets in the book of Acts that indicate to us how discipleship can be effective so that the 120 can multiply, so that there can be, there can be a reaching of people uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, part of the reason some churches get smaller is because they start other churches. Some of the reasons that churches get smaller are because they, they, uh, they have uh, fragmentation and uh, they go off separate ways. Sometimes that's a very healthy thing. And uh, we're not just looking for bigness. Uh, that we, don't call, we don't count success merely in terms of numbers. But I think you have to face the fact that God dealt with numbers in the book of Acts in the first six chapters. If numbers were not important to God, why does he tell us there were 120? Why didn't he just say, a bunch of people, we won't count them because that would be unspiritual? And when there were 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost, why didn't he just say, well, numbers aren't important, so we, we didn't count them, but there were a lot of people, we know that. Oh, God was very accurate. 3,000 in one case, 5,000 in another case, a number of priests, though they did not count specifically those, and they did not count beyond that. Yet we do know some specific numbers. There was phenomenal growth in the early church. And uh, incidentally also, I, I think it's safe to say that uh, the secret of church growth is not necessarily uh, fragmenting the church. Now, we have reason to believe that even though um, the, the churches of that day met in homes, the churches nevertheless were much larger than we have imagined them to be. Uh, we hear a lot about house churches today. There's nothing wrong with that. Lord bless them if they want to begin a church in a house. But God help them if they don't move to a bigger house when they grow. And if they don't eventually move to where they can accommodate the crowds. If they're doing any kind of a job at all, the object of the church was never to remain small. There's a, there was a, a group of people uh, called, uh, they were apostolic faith. And their, their theme was Jesus only. Now, they didn't believe in the Trinity and a lot of other things, but they, uh, they were a very exclusive little sect of people. And one day a windstorm came along, blew the first three letters off their sign. And they were renamed what they really were, us only. They were very exclusive. They wouldn't let anybody into their little clique, into their little group. And unfortunately, too many churches have the sign up, us only. And God doesn't want that. God wants us to be prepared for what he wants to do. You want to know one reason why churches grow or don't grow? Because God's people never expect them to grow. They never plan for growth. They never plan and, and expect that God is going to bless. If God blessed, they'd be the most surprised people in the world. And they'd say, wow, how'd that happen? Didn't think it could ever happen. 
But God wants to bless his people. And we start with that. All right, so you see, they started out with 120 people. All right, now let's go to chapter 2 and verse 41. And they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. All right, we have 120, now we have 3,000 souls. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added, and by the way, the word added is imperfect, he added to the church daily such as should be saved. There was a, a process of adding to the church, continuous action in past time. Now we're writing this in a future time as far as this event was concerned. And so imperfect carries the idea of, of continuous action in past time. So we have a double concept here. We have continuous action in past time, and we also have the fact that it was done daily. The process of adding people to the church was not every Sunday or every quarter or whatever, but it was every day. And it was not talking about joining the local church. Once again, you know, there is no real warrant biblically for church membership per se. <coughs> Actually, Church membership is made up of those who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. And as people, this really means that people were being one to Jesus Christ every single day. And thus they were added to the church. All right, look at chapter 4 and verse 4. But many of them who heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. Now, we've got to put a question mark here as to how many were added because, you know, now several months have gone by. We know there's been at least one person added every day because there were being uh, individuals added daily. We don't know how many that number is. Now we have 3,000, but they're not 3,000 souls this time. They're 3,000 men. And if statistics mean anything at all, usually there's more women that make decisions than men. So you probably could be safe and double this number. And you could have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people. Because this did not count women, did not count children. It's talking about men only. And so therefore we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 13,000 possibly that now have made a decision for Jesus Christ and the church hasn't even gotten off the ground yet. They haven't even gotten organized. Now, some people think that if the church could ever get organized, then we could grow. Heaven help us. Growth does not come through organization. Organization facilitates disciple building. It facilitates the carrying on of the ministry. But it is not that which really causes the kind of growth that God recognizes in heaven. So all of this then just leads us on in the book of Acts to some other exciting things. Look at verse 21. You think this was a successful church? You better believe it was. 
Verse 21, so, the, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all glorified God for that which was done. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 13, look at it a minute. Chapter 3, verse 13, you'll notice the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus Christ, whom he delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now that was one of the goals that the apostle Peter had for those to whom he was ministering. He wanted them to glorify God. All right? So what happened was that they ultimately, through the ministry of the apostles, through the message that they'd given, through the boldness that they had in verse 13 of chapter 4, and so on, because of the healing of the, the, the man uh, who uh, had been there by the temple gate, it says in verse 21 that all, that is the whole city, was glorifying God for that which was done. There were exceptions, of course, to that. There were the rulers that did not glorify God for that which was done, but they could not hold these disciples because all of the people were stirred up and they were so happy about the lame man being healed that the purpose of glorifying God had been fulfilled. All right? Now look at Acts 4 and verse 32. And the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and one soul. There was a beautiful unity in the midst of the people. Neither said any of them uh, that any of his, the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. There again, we have a multitude now. We can't put a figure on that, but it's a multitude. Chapter 5 and verse 14. And the believers were more added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Chapter 6 and verse 1. And in those days when the number of disciples were multiplied. Now notice, they started out adding to the church daily. But now they're multiplying. How do you multiply? Well, each person who is born into the family of God becomes a reproducer. That's multiplication. It's obvious. You see, you can add to the church till you're blue in the face and you won't have too many. If you have three people to start with, then you add one, that gives you four. And you add one, it gives you five. Add, add one, you get six. Ah, it doesn't go so fast, you see. But if you have three people and each of them reach one, then, you see, you have six. And if each of those six reach, reaches one, now you have twelve. Each of those 12 reaches one. Then you have 144, and on and on and on. The reason I didn't go any further is because I can't count any higher than that. 12 times 12 is 144. That's the highest one I know. <laughs> okay. But you see, it just multiplies and multiplies. So you see, now they're multiplying. In those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, notice they're not simply believers, though they are believers. They are disciples. Remember, the apostles were told by Jesus Christ that they were to go and disciple all nations. Not merely to go and preach the gospel, though that's a part of it. But they were to disciple all nations and teach them in the name, uh, teach them concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
So it says the number of disciples was multiplied. There arose a murmuring of Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. The church multiplied. As the church multiplied, there needed then to be some organization and planning and so on. That, of course, was something that we'll talk about just a little bit later. And then Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now do you see what's happened here? This, my friend, at least from the standpoint of the way Luke has recorded it, the way God views it, for this would be God's viewpoint of the early church's history. This church was a successful church. Now, I'm not one to uh, drum for numbers because I believe that, that what the church has a responsibility to do is minister faithfully to those that God sends. And I personally um, cannot get involved in the concept of just filling up pews. Uh, there are ways you can do that. Uh, you can hire a fleet of buses, and you can bus people in from wherever you can pick them up. And you can fill your pews, and you can say, wow, look what a good-sized church we have. And it's questionable sometimes whether you're really meeting the needs of those people. But I want to say something about numbers, because that's what seems to be brought out here. When people's needs are being met, when people's needs are being met through the teaching of the Word of God, the numbers come. The multiplication comes. When the flock is healthy, they reproduce healthy sheep who have the ability to reproduce other healthy sheep. And when you reproduce sheep like that, the church does grow. And one of the things, one of the things that... Uh, uh, just hasn't bothered me at all is the fact that that uh, when I first came to Valley Church the attendance went down and uh, then growth has not been spectacular at any point that doesn't bother me at all because I believe that that's not my responsibility and it's not your responsibility in fact the, we keep records for one reason one reason only here at Valley Church it's so we can plan for the future, so we can see what is happening. Otherwise, we just kind of look out there and say, boy, there's a lot of people out there. We don't quite know where we are, and we don't know how to plan for the future. We know we need that building out there because we know how many we have in Sunday school. We know how many square feet of space we have. We know how many rooms we need, and we already are behind. And so that building is not only essential, it's uh, probably two years too late. We should be two years ahead of this, say, as far as planning is concerned, all right? So that's why we keep records. Other than that, there's no reason. Because we are not, we are not locked into having to grow a certain amount every year. No one, at least as far as officially here at Valley Church, is going to judge the ministry on the basis of whether or not we are showing numerical growth on a, on a short-range basis. And we're showing growth. But get this. Our responsibility is to minister to the people. It's God's responsibility then to bring the growth. And what we have to do is we have to get the flock that God has given us to a point where they are healthy enough to reproduce. And I'll tell you something. Don't know about you, 
But we're getting some pretty healthy people in this congregation. And you watch. One of these days, it's going to explode on us. It's going to blow right up in our faces. And we're suddenly going to say, wow. Somebody asked me the other day, what are we going to do with this sanctuary when we have to build a bigger one? Have you thought about that? We can go to three services, but that's not going to do any good. Because when it explodes, my friend, three services isn't going to hold the people. You understand what I'm saying? Why? Simply because when God's people are right with him, living in his word, and reproducing, the multiplication will come. And maybe to this point, we have been adding to the church. And the day will come where we will be multiplying. And when the multiplication starts, can you imagine? Next Sunday? No, next Sunday's Easter. That didn't count. Within the next two weeks, suppose each person at Valley Church led one person to Jesus Christ and brought them to church with them the next Sunday. Where would we put them? Where would we put them? See, that's the big question. And yet, why shouldn't we do that in any given two-week period? Why shouldn't that be a possibility? I'm really excited, you know, about uh, um, Bo Bottomley coming. And I'm excited as I hear other men talking about how they have invited friends and those friends who would never come with them to church have said, yeah, that sounds great, I'll go with you. It's the genius of a couple of men who had a burden for this kind of ministry. And they decided to get it away from the church where they'd have a chance to reach guys who won't come to church. And they decided to make it good and spend a little money and bring someone in that uh, is going to be able to have an appeal to a broad range of people. If you ever heard Bo Bottomley, you know that guy's going to share the gospel in a way that men are going to be shaken. And we're going to see a bunch of guys saved on the 30th. In fact, you better be ready if you're bringing a man to answer his questions. Scripture says that you're to be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asketh concerning the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So you better be ready to answer some questions on the way home that night. Because some of you, before you pull into that driveway, are going to have to pull alongside the road and bow your heads and lead that guy to Christ. And then tell him, hey, you want to grow as a Christian? Why don't you come with me to church Sunday? See? And there'll be a bunch of you men. They're going to have other men that just come to Christ and are going to be sitting beside you. Now, that's, that's one little opportunity. Again, it's, it's, it's the same thing. If you meet the needs of the people that you have, and what's our need? Our need is to have a tool and an opportunity to bring men in and have them witnessed to by someone and then have us follow up. That's a need. A need is being met as that need is met and as other needs are met. And more and more we're going to see a multiplication process. The result is going to be many people coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And the church grows. And the only reason we'll count is because we want to be, be able to plan for the future as much as possible even if we are two years behind plan and be prepared for whatever God may send to us. It is never our responsibility to go out and promote and try to get a lot of people here. We could do that through mass advertising and a lot of other things, but that's a really a foolish thing because then we have a lot of artificial growth. What we need to do is be faithful where we are and with what God has given us 
and then he'll make us ruler over many things. Now, the scripture then gives to us in these first six chapters of the book of Acts a phenomenal evidence of the strength of this success. But there's something else here. The scripture also gives an evidence of the scope of this success. For some of these individuals were not individuals who were, who were from the local area. Let's look at three passages. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Uh, let me pause here a moment and just say that um, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, as we generally call it, uh, was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And it was one of those feasts where if you were going to celebrate it, there was only one place you could celebrate it properly. That was in the city of Jerusalem, at the temple. Now, something had happened, a phenomenal thing, a number of years before. Alexander the Great had conquered the world for all practical purposes. He did a number of very spectacular things. He invented the Koine Greek language, making it possible for communication in every country that he had conquered uh, so that everybody understand his military orders primarily. But he did something else. Alexander the Great was a governmental genius. He knew how to rule men. And one thing he knew was that you had to utilize other men. He saw immediately the genius of the of the, the Jewish person involved in, uh, in government. Uh, the Jews, of course, are shrewd in government even today. And uh, in that day, he recognized their ability. And so he, of course, had the Jews in his, the palm of his hand. Uh, and uh, he would take uh, Jewish advisors with him wherever he would go. And when he would conquer a nation, he would teach them the Koine Greek language, and then he would place in that land he would place an individual who was a Jew and give him a responsibility of government there. And he'd go on and conquer another city and put another Jew there and go on and conquer another city and have another Jewish advisor. Now this was several generations ago. The generations have passed. And in the process of those generations passing, they have had families. They have grown up in the community. They are still Jews. Remember the Apostle Paul, wherever he went, there were uh, synagogues. Remember? Those synagogues were there because the Jewish advisors that Alexander the Great had brought in had grown, the Jewish community had grown enough so there were enough men to have a synagogue. There wasn't one in Philippi. There was in Thessalonica. They had to have at least nine men uh, who would be able to, uh, to start a synagogue. And in uh, Philippi, they didn't have that many. They only had a handful of women who were praying down by the river bank. Uh, and so there was no, uh, there, there weren't enough Jewish believers, uh, believers in the Jewish way, Orthodox Jews, in the city of Philippi. And so wherever, wherever Alexander the Great went, he placed these people. Now on the day of Pentecost, they would come. Remember in the, in the text here, it says that each man heard the word of God in his own language, the language in which he was born. All of these Jews would speak Hebrew, they would speak Greek, but they would also speak the language in which they were born, which would be the peculiar dialect of the people in the area that they had been placed. They, of course, were a, a, a third-generation Jew. 
And so these Jews now came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. And it says they were devout men out of every nation under heaven. That is, all of the known civilized nations of the world were represented there by Jews. Now that was one of the phenomenons of Pentecost was the fact that they heard the word of God not in Hebrew but rather heard it in the tongue in which they were born. They would have expected to hear God speak in Hebrew. They all believed that God spoke Hebrew. And the tongues there in the book of Acts spoke in reference to the fact that they heard these things in the tongue in which they were born. They heard the word of God in, in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 28. They heard it in staccato, uh, guttural speech, languages that were not poetic like the Hebrew. And so, in any event, what it says here now is that when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And the answer to that is Isaiah 28:11. That's a fulfillment of that prophecy. But now notice. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt and all parts of Libya about Cyrene and the sojourners of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, do we hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful or the magus, the mighty works of God? And they were all amazed and were perplexed, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Other mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Now, do you see what's happened here? Think of the genius of this as far as God is concerned. Not only is he fulfilling the prophecy that they would hear these things in staccato tongues, but he is also planting believers throughout the entire world. New believers, mind you, but believers everywhere. These 3,000 people who made decisions for Christ were not residents of Jerusalem. Some of them were. But God planted the seeds of the gospel all throughout the ancient world. Back in Cappadocia, up in, up in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Pontius, in Asia, in Galatia, all of these places. And mind you, a study of the languages involved show that all of them were staccato, guttural languages. That fulfilled that prophecy. But at the same time, God placed these people. You ever think of how God is going to accomplish his purpose in seven years during the tribulation? Through the preaching of 144,000? Well, you know what's going to happen? There are 144,000 Jews. Some of them may not even realize their nationality. Most of them would, I suppose. But... They may not even realize it. But they're off somewhere. In every tribe and nation of the world, there are Jews, people of Jewish descent. And God is going to lay his hand not on 144,000 that are in Jerusalem. Oh, no. Because, you see, if they did that, what they'd have to do is they would have to go to Bible school for four years, go to language school for a couple of years, and then they could finally get out to the field. And by that time, the tribulation's over and God hasn't even started yet. So God doesn't do it that way. 
No, he calls them out of every tribe on earth, all throughout the world, wherever their Jews scattered. And there are 12,000 in this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 in this tribe, 144,000 altogether. And they'll be scattered throughout the world and they'll be God's ambassadors. They'll be sealed so they'll be protected during the time of tribulation. And God will get the gospel out through these gospel messengers. He will not leave the world without a witness. He takes us out, the church, we'll be raptured. So we won't be here to witness. But God then will use the 144,000 to minister his word. God did the same thing in miniature here in the book of Acts. And that's part of the reason why Paul, when he went on his missionary journeys into Gentile areas, found receptivity on the part of the people. It's amazing what one man can do. Do you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the hill country called Gadarenes? When we go from uh, those of us that are going to the Holy Land, when we go across the Sea of Galilee uh, from from uh, the, the city of Caesarea, uh, from the city of uh, Capernaum, where the Lord Jesus Christ made his residence. We get on the boat there. We go right, right across the middle, uh, lengthwise, of the, the Dead Sea, about, or Red Sea, excuse me, the Sea of Galilee, about halfway across, and then we cut over to a place where we eat lunch. And up to our left, in what's now called the Golan Heights, there is the area of the Gadarenes. And that area there... Is, is an area uh, where, where this man had terrorized the community. And there's a precipice where the pigs went over, if you remember the story. After Christ cast the legion of demons out of the man, cast him into the swine, the swine went headlong into the sea. You can see how it could happen right up there. And that, that area was unevangelized. They wanted to get rid of Christ as quick as they could. Even though he had protected them uh, by casting the demons out, he had spoiled their pig trade, and so therefore they were mad at him. And they said, get out of town. And so they asked him, besought him, uh, which is a nice way of saying, ran him out of town on a rail, tarred and feathered, get out of our, our community. They besought him to leave their coasts, he said. And the man of Gadarenes wanted to get into the boat and go with the Lord Jesus. And the Lord says, no, you go back and share with others what, what great things God has done for you. So the Gospel of Luke tells us that when Christ returned, they welcomed him gladly because of the witness of this man. One man. In a community that was antagonistic toward the Gospel. And he had that kind of an impact. So when Christ returned, they welcomed him with open arms. Now, the same thing was true throughout the Gentile world where these Jews were placed. Some of them, all of them, were very ill-taught. They didn't know much. All they knew was that they received what God had done for them. And then, of course, the apostles' ministry confirmed that, as we'll see later on. So they were from many nations. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 26. Here specifically, that's not the one I want. Um, well, the one I was looking for, and you'll probably find it after I start talking about it, uh, was the, the story concerning Barnabas. And concerning the fact that Barnabas was a Levite. A Levite, a devout Levite, and yet a man that was a man that came to a knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. And then in addition to that, look, if you will, at chapter 6 and verse 7. Chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of the Lord increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. These would be now the local people there. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. By the way, that word priests generally refers to the Sadducees, who of course were in opposition most of the time, but there were a great number of these priests who came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, this was only a beginning. The gospel would spread throughout the uh, world through the ministry of the apostles and the disciples. And uh, it would cut across national boundaries. It will penetrate every, every, every level, level, every strata of society. In chapter 16, we see Lydia, the seller of purple from Thyatira, who happens to be in Philippi on business. And there in her summer home in that coastal, coastal city of Philippi, and uh, she finds Christ as her Savior. The same chapter tells us about the possible conversion of the girl that had the spirit of divination. And it also tells us about the conversion of the house of the Philippian jailer. Not only the conversion of the jailer, but also his house. It tells us as we go through the book of Acts and as we look into the apostles that there were rich people and there were poor people who accepted Christ as Savior. There were slaves, there were masters, there were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were bond, there were free. There were male, there were female. And the gospel even reached, according to Philippians chapter 1 verse 13, into Caesar's palace. The gospel had a penetrating effect throughout all of society. The disciples were indeed successful in the spread of the gospel in that early church. But now, that's the evidence that shows us that they were successful. The big question is, how'd they do it? What's the explanation for the success of the disciples' ministry? We want to look at that next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would thank you and praise you for what we have seen tonight. It encourages us. For we realize that sky's the limit and that you have much more for us than what we've seen up to now. That you can do whatever you purpose to do. If we're faithful in a few things, then you will make us rule over many. And we realize, Lord, that what you want from us then is to be faithful and carry out biblical principles in our life, in our conduct, in our witness, in our work in the local church, and especially as the local church works together for your glory. And Lord, we pray that you help us to go from here tonight with a new sense of destiny, a new sense of what you are trying to accomplish in this local body, and help us to be faithful in our Jerusalem and to touch lives and to see the impact of the gospel spread throughout the entire earth. Bless, we pray to this end. Give us all a good night's rest and a good and full and rich day tomorrow. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.